You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Take out your Bible, open it to the sixth book in your Bible. It's the book of Joshua. If you were here last week, you know that we, last week we started a brand new series verse by verse through the 24 chapters of the book of Joshua. We've entitled that series, Onward. Don't stop now. And the idea is this, no matter how far you've come, God always has something else in front of you He wants you to reach for. And I'm talking to some people right now that, quite honestly, you haven't come all that far. This is all brand new to you, even thinking about Jesus. And maybe you're some like these in the baptistry waters. You kind of had an experience as a child, but you kind of wandered away from that. And quite honestly, the last 40 years of your life may look more like a wilderness than a promised land. And the promise for you is this. No matter how far you've wandered... It's time for you to go onward. There is something for God that God has for you to reach for. The big idea of last week's message was simply this. The direction of the Christian life is onward. And we've tried to create a symbol to help you never forget this. By the end of this series, this will be burned indelibly on your eye. You will close your eyes at night and you will see the onward direction. That's the idea here. So the big idea for this message related to that truth from last week is this. Here's the big idea. God prepares leaders to propel his people onward. God prepares leaders to propel his people onward. Do you know the direction of a leaderless people? Do you know what that direction is? That direction is stagnant. That direction is stop. And so God uses leaders to stir people to get moving in the right direction. And no matter who you are here this morning, you are a leader. You are. Turn to your neighbor and let them know. You are a leader. Did you know that? Some of you are looking at somebody like, I'm not quite sure they realize they're a leader. Turn back to him and say, you need to hear this message this morning. Okay? You're a leader. And guess what? Everybody here is also a follower because how many of you have a boss? How many of you have a boss? If you're you're living with parents, you have a boss, right? Okay? If you have a job, you have a boss. If you're a member of the church, you've got a spiritual leader. And it's a team called the elder team and the leadership team at the church. And so we're all followers at some level, and we're all leaders at some level. The reason we're talking about leadership is because Joshua was a leader. He wasn't always a leader. At one point, he was simply a follower. So we're going to kind of look at the backstory of what he was and what he became and how he led. Let me just say this about leaders, okay? Anywhere you have a population of more than one, you need a leader. Anywhere you have a population of more than one, you need a leader. If you are married, how many of you are married? Raise your hands. Raise your hands. How many of you want to stay married? Okay. Um, You need a leader in the marriage. And it's the job of the leader in the marriage to say we're going onward. And we're going to lock arms together and we're going to face the challenges. You know what a leader does? A leader defines reality. No matter how chaotic it looks, no matter how troublesome, no matter how strong the enemies are, you know what the leader says? 
We can do this. A leader steps into chaos and says, stop freaking out. Follow me. I can get us out of this. That's what a leader does. He defines reality. A leader does this. He creates a compelling state of affairs that engenders fellowship. He says, this is what the reality is. Here is the solution, and here's how we're going to go. That's what a leader does. And every marriage needs a leader. Now, do you know who in the marriage God has designated as the leader? The husband is the leader of the marriage. Now, men, can I just talk to you? Just All right, ladies, you can just check out here for a second. Guys, I am quite sure that God did not designate me as the leader in my marriage because of my superior intellect. Okay? I am quite sure it was not because of my winsome personality that God made me the leader. I am quite sure it is not my financial management skills, my ability to discern what's going on in the lives of the children. It is not my communication ability that determined God's designation of me as the leader or you. Do you know why God wants you to be the leader? Because He is painting a picture that He wants the world to see. It's called the gospel. What it looks like for Jesus to lead the church. God said... That marriage, the husband, is the picture of Christ in the marriage. He's the bridegroom. And as Christ lovingly leads his bride, the church, it sends a message to the world of what our relationship to God should be like. So men, if you are not leading, you are not properly reflecting the picture God wants to paint in the marriage. And here's the thing. Your wife wants you to lead. Now, ladies, I know I told you to check out, but that was the time to check back in because I was expecting a round of amens at that point, okay? Would you like me to back up and give you another run at that? Men, your wife wants you to lead. And when you don't lead, you force her to take leadership and pull pressure on herself that God designed you to carry. Men function best under pressure and responsibility. Not from the wife, but from God to carry the weight in the marriage, to be the leader. Every place you have a population of more than one, you need a leader. So we've mentioned marriage, but schools need leaders. And churches need leaders. And small groups need leaders. Communities need leaders. And sixth grade math classes need leaders. And I'm not talking about the teacher. I'm talking about... Christian students that walk into the classroom and say, I am not just being forced to walk in here. I'm being sent by God to lead the culture and the environment and the conversation and the attitudes because I know the way God wants us to go. And so everybody here is a leader and a nation needs a leader. Right now, our nation is kind of in a conversation about who's going to be the next leader. And can I just say this? The leader that thinks that the problems are political, will come up with political solutions. But the leader that understands the problems are at the root, spiritual, will lean into God for spiritual solutions. So we need to be very careful 
I don't know why people clap when I get on political topics. When I'm talking about the gospel all the time and you just sit there. Mm, 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 mm. I say something political, they're like, oh, let's go vote, you know. Hey, listen, you should vote. But here's the thing. You know, what the, you know what the big mistake of the people of Israel was in the Old Testament after Joshua actually got them into the promised land? This is kind of the next chapter, the next book in the Bible. The problem is they cried out for a political leader. And God gave them some horrible political leaders and said, you know what? You might want to look to me as the ultimate leader because here's the principle. Leadership is good. We're going to make a big deal about leadership here this morning. Leadership is good, but leadership is not God. Back in 1998, there was a book that came out that completely revolutionized a genre of publishing. The book was called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell. Great book. I have benefited from that book. It launched book after book after book. And there's a whole, you go to Barnes & Noble or on Amazon, there, there's a whole section of leadership books. You come back six months, all those books are gone. And there'll be a whole new another section of, of books. Because everybody's got thoughts on leadership. Everybody wants to be a leader. Everybody wants to learn to lead. But if you're not careful, you can actually make leadership an idol in your life and stop short of allowing God to not only be leader, but Lord of every area. Everywhere there's a population of more than one, you need a leader. And God provided a leader named Joshua to his people that were aimlessly wandering in the wilderness. And so we're going to kind of see this, and we're going to, let's get into the Bible. I've talked way too long before we have read some scripture, so let's do that right now. Joshua chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first five verses here. It says this, And after the death of Moses, Moses was the leader for 40 years, getting the people out of Egypt. He got them into the wilderness. They're wandering around. Moses sends... And so it cut short his leadership. Side note, sin will cut short your leadership. Moses was not able to take them to the place God wanted them to go. He was going to raise up another leader named Joshua to take them to a place Moses couldn't take them. And so in verse 1, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun. Moses' assistant. Everybody just underline the word assistant there in verse 1. Very important word. We'll come back to it. Verse 2. Moses, my servant, is dead. Not a whole lot of compassion in God's voice as he says that. You know, he's just, Moses is dead. How's Moses doing today? He's dead. He's having a great day in heaven, but he's not going to be a whole lot of use on earth anymore because Moses is dead. Just turn to your neighbor and say, one day you're going to be dead. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to Harvest Bible Chapel this morning? We're just here to encourage you to have a wonderful week, okay? But that is a very important principle for leadership. To understand one day they will say about me what God said about Moses. He's dead. You're loved. Verse 2. <laughs> Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them to the people of Israel. Do you see what God is saying? Moses was dead, but God was not dead. Moses was dead, but the movement was not dead. Any movement that dies when the leader dies 
proves there was a failure in the leadership. Moses was dead. Great. Next, Joshua, arise. Go into this land, verse 3, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I will give to you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness to this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory, verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Let's stop right there. Here's four principles that we're going to learn this morning about onward leadership. First of all, onward leaders are committed to multiplying other onward leaders. Why? Because onward leaders know soon they will be dead. Every leader has a terminal condition. Every leader has an expiration date. Every leader knows he is eventually going to pass the baton of leadership. And so onward leaders are always thinking beyond their lifetimes. They're thinking about their legacy. They're thinking about who in the younger generation that I am quite sure is going to outlive me can I open my hand and give the leadership to so that when I die, the movement doesn't die. They're always thinking about what happens when I drop dead. I, I know that you think I'm making fun of this, but I am not. One day I will preach your funeral if I'm younger than you. And um, we'll, we'll cry and we'll say some nice things about you, but eventually we'll all just end up back at the church eating potato salads, and we're going to have to think about what's next, okay? And so if you're a good leader, you are always looking for someone younger than you to infect with the mission that you want to carry on after you. That's what Moses did. Moses was an onward leader. And God told Moses he was going to die. You're not going into the promised land. And God told Moses who to pass the baton to. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, we read this verse. God talking to Moses. And he says, charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this people. And he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. Moses was able to see the land. He just wasn't able to possess the land. Joshua was going to take his people onward to a place Moses couldn't get them. And there were three things that God told him to do. First of all, charge them. You know what an onward leader does? He finds a faithful follower who is usually undeveloped, timid, but hanging close enough to the leader that he sees potential. And he charges him as a follower to come into leadership. He reaches down into the heart of the follower and calls out the leader. That's what an onward leader does. Secondly, he encourages him. Not only does he call something out of a follower, he puts something into the follower. What is it? Courage. We're going to find that one of the greatest characteristics of Joshua is courage. Where did that courage come from? 
Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moses got an assignment. You know what you're going to do for 40 years? You're going to be pumping courage into this faithful follower. And then the third thing, third thing is he was supposed to strengthen him. He was supposed to give him core competencies he's going to need to lead. Maybe there were some skills that needed to be developed, some equipping that needed to be done, and certainly there was some spiritual muscle that needed to be developed so that he could carry the weight that is required by a leader. So if you are an onward leader, you are always looking for someone younger than you to charge, encourage, and strengthen. It's exactly what Moses did. Moses was a contagious leader. He was always looking for someone to infect with the virus he was carrying. What's that new virus that's happening right now in Central America? What's that called? The Zika virus? Is, does anybody here have? If you have that, um, you are loved, but you are dismissed. Okay, we, we are not interested in being, uh, uh, getting what you have. All right? But an onward leader is always looking for someone that he can transmit the virus, so that someone else can be a carrier of what he has been infected with. And if you're a Christian, you're a carrier of the virus of the gospel. And the great thing about this virus is it doesn't kill, it cures the sin and the virus of sin that we already have. And so that's why I say, if you're a Christian, you're a leader. You're always looking for someone that you can charge with the gospel, encourage with the gospel, strengthen them with the gospel, so that we can and they can go onward into the land God wants them to, to possess. A land that you heard so great a description of by those who were baptized. Like, I'm happier than I've ever been. It's hard. It's tough. You get beat up on social media. But by the way, if you're looking to social media for affirmation, you might want to look at a different place. This might be a good place to look for affirmation of what God's doing. And that's what a leader does. He is looking for someone that he can open his hand to and infect with the gospel. It reminds me of this verse over in the New Testament. Paul was the greatest carrier of the gospel that ever lived. And he found a younger leader... And in the last book that he wrote before Paul died, he writes this. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so notice in this verse how many generations are mentioned. Paul was not just interested in handing off the baton to the next generation, Timothy. He wanted Timothy to know, Timothy, one day... You're going to be dead. You need to find some guys, hand that off, and one day you're going to be dead. Hand that off. And because there have been faithful leaders handing off the gospel for over 2,000 years, we're all here today, and you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to hand it off to you so that you can go hand it off to somebody else and we can continue the movement that is a relationship with Jesus by faith and repentance through the power of the cross. We've sung about it here this morning. Are you a faithful carrier of the gospel? My friend Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth shares the story about how when she was a 21-year-old girl, she got a phone call 
and learned that her 53-year-old father had suddenly dropped dead of a heart attack, totally unexpected, leaving her 40-year-old mother with seven children between the ages of 8 and 21. And she describes the story, how she remembers the memorial service, how her mom lined up the children on the front row of that memorial service with her father there in the casket. Dr. Jerry Falwell gave the memorial service sermon And this is what he said in his opening prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are reminded of those inspired words. Moses, your servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people. That is what we wish to do, but we need your help. Help us then even tonight to hear what we need to hear, to feel what we need to feel, in order that we may go out of here this evening and over this Jordan and those Jordans that are yet to come. That the work of our Lord manifested through this thy servant Arthur DeMoss might be extended through us. May many Joshuas be raised up here tonight, men and women who would not have been raised up had art not fallen and caused that the greater day of fruitfulness and evangelism and expansion of the kingdom of God be affected because contrary to our logic, your ways are far above our ways and they have prevailed in Jesus' name asking for this dear family to have grace beyond anything we can imagine. Amen. And as a result, I believe God's answered that prayer and the gospel's gone on through that family and even through the ministry that Nancy has had that has even touched more lives than art ever touched. And so are you an onward leader always looking to multiply the next generation of onward leaders? Number two, onward leaders are made from faithful followers. Do you see it there in verse 1? The simple description that God gives to Joshua in relation to Moses was assistant. Can you imagine Moses and Joshua introducing themselves to maybe some new people in Israel? Hi, I'm Moses. I'm the leader. Nice to meet you. Who are you? I'm his assistant. Is that all? Yeah, for now, that's all. Do you know how long... Joshua was Moses' assistant? Forty years. Hi, I'm his assistant. What do you do? I just assist him. That's that's what I do. That's what I was created to do. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it happily because I believe in the leader. And I want to go onward. And the best use of me right now is not to be the leader. It is to be the assistant. To the leader. What do you think Joshua saw in Moses that created the kind of contentment it takes to be an assistant for 40 years? I believe that Joshua saw greatness in Moses. That's what a great follower does. He finds someone in whom he sees greatness. I, I thought about my, uh, my former youth pastor this week. I, I still follow him on Facebook. And uh, he's now a 57-year-old man. It's, it, it's weird to think of your youth pastor as being a 57-year-old man, but then again, it's kind of hard to think of me being a 48-year-old man. So uh, I, can, I can digest that a little bit. But I saw a Facebook post. He's now a pastor in, um, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And he proudly announced on Facebook that he had finished 
his bachelor's degree in biblical studies this week. And I thought, I didn't know you didn't have one. Because I sure learned a lot of Bible from the guy who didn't officially have the education that he now has pursued and obtained. And um, I, I've thought about, you know, I, I learned to study the Bible from watching my youth pastor teach us the Bible on Wednesday night. Just keep showing up. And you know what I became? I became his assistant. I, which means, can you be an assistant of a youth pastor? I mean... Youth pastor's pretty low on the totem pole anyway. I don't know where Tyler is, but he knows. And, uh, and, and I'm just going to be that guy's assistant, you know. What does that mean? Yeah, I get to, you know, hand out basketballs in the gym, you know, and, and inflate the, you know, rubber duckies that we're using for the youth game or whatever on Wednesday night. But that's what I love to do. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't have any idea I'd be doing today what I was doing then, but I was just an assistant. Are, are you content to be? the assistant of a great leader? Have you found someone that you believe has greatness and you've tucked yourself under their leadership? Another thing that it takes is patience. Incredible patience to wait and, end, and understanding that in the waiting, God is preparing another leader. And another thing it takes is it, it takes incredible humility to say, you know what? I am in a position that God has appointed me to, and I'm not going to pursue a position. What I'm going to do is I'm going to value influence. Do you understand the difference between a position of leadership and a position of influence? It's usually just a line on the organizational chart, but it's very possible that the assistant has more influence than the guy that has the position. And as the guy that has the position watches the guy who is the assistant influence those under him, guess what the leader is likely to do? Grab the follower and elevate his position. You know, in, um, in the church, and as I've grown in leadership and tried to figure out how to lead this growing church, I... I've learned some things and I'm burdened by some things as it relates to leadership. Can I just share two um, leadership principles that, that, that are interesting? And, and I'll set it up with this verse um, and, and this thought. We've, we've looked at Joshua, how God called Joshua into a position of leadership. Moses is dead, arise and go. That's a call, right? But before God called Joshua, the follower... God told Moses, the leader, we read that back in Deuteronomy chapter 3. And that's a principle you find in Scripture over and over. Before Jesus chose his disciples, not only his followers that would become the leaders of the church, Jesus spent an entire night in prayer asking God to show him who to choose as the leaders. So before Jesus called the disciples, God told the leader who the disciples would be. And then we get over to Acts chapter 13. The gospel had arrived in a new city called Antioch. Finally got out of Jerusalem. And there was a church planted in this place called Antioch. And, and new leaders were raised. And uh, we get a little snapshot of a leadership meeting that happened at Harvest Bible Chapel Antioch here in Acts chapter 13. Notice what it says. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Who were they? That's the leaders, right? 
this is a leadership meeting, prophets and teachers, and we get a little roll call of who's at the meeting. We got Barnabas, we got Simeon, who was also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, a lifelong friend of, of Herod, the Tetrarch, and this unnamed guy named Saul. And uh, so he, here you have these five leaders. Notice how eclectic this group is, by the way. Notice how multicultural this group is, by the way. There were many different colors in the room for that leadership team. And they're having a great time. They're rejoicing in how God's growing His church. And guess what happens? God speaks while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. I don't know what that says about our elder meetings. Usually in our elder meetings, we're talking and eating. Okay, And so in their elder meetings, they were worshiping and fasting. Maybe that's a better track than the one we've been on. But it says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me that guy, Barnabas, and that guy, Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Now, I want you to notice the relationship between the call and the confirmation. The next verse says this. After... Fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. This is the way, this is the reason I say that. Because the one who insists that he has the call of God on his life and he's pounding the table and he's begging for a leadership position and you guys are idiots and you don't know what you're talking about, you need to elevate me into leadership. I'm so awesome, you just haven't seen my awesome leaking out yet. If that guy is unwilling to go to the current leadership and say, does anybody agree with me that I have a call, that I am qualified, that I am equipped, and that I'm ready to make the transition from follower, assistant, into the role of leader? If nobody agrees with that guy, he may think he has a call, but if he doesn't have the confirmation from the current leaders... He needs to rethink the call. So let, here's, here's the two challenges in leadership, especially around here. It's this. It's dealing with the one who desires a position of leadership, but isn't qualified, gifted, or equipped. It's a good thing to examine, are you leading at any level? Is anybody following you? Are you leading your family? Is it healthy? Are you making disciples at home? Have you even attempted to lead someone to Christ or disciple someone one-on-one? Have you attempted leading a small group? That's hard enough, and all the small group leaders said. That's hard enough, and you want to try that for a while. And instead of like bypassing all of the other positions and going to the head of the line, you might want to learn how to become a faithful follower and get equipped and qualified before you attempt to lead at the highest level. So you say, okay, okay, I, I want to learn. How do you become a great follower? Hey, let me give you some thoughts, just five quick thoughts if you want to become a great follower. And by the way, I was reading a blog this week by Michael Hyatt, and I was preparing this message, and I'm like, oh, but that is perfect. And so I just ripped those right out and stuck them in the sermon. So here they are. Michael Hyatt says, great followers are clear. Clear about what? They're clear about their role. They're clear about their skill set. And they're clear who they are following. You know, um, 
I rarely meet people that are kind of in our church and then kind of out of our church. And then they'll say, well, I was going to this church over here for a while. And by the way, I subscribed to three other podcasts. And I heard this guy preach over here, that message, and this one here. And I was reading this particular book. There is so much information available in our age. You need to be clear who you're following. If you're following everyone and everything, you are not following anyone. You're just picking and choosing what you like, and you're being your own leader. You're a self-led person. But if you plug into things around here, we have some things that are very important. They're convictional principles about the way we think we should make disciples. And so that's why we value membership. We want you to come and find out how we do things. And here's a doctrinal statement, and we believe this about some controversial things. And here's four pillars of what we're going to value around here. And here's uh, an uncommon leadership class about how we make disciples and, and apply biblical principles. Those are convictional things for us. And if you are not clear about where you fit in the onward direction of the church, you're not going to be clear about who you're following. Can, can I make this? Let me use an illustration. Okay, now, this is a risky illustration. I'm, I may lose all respect from everyone but one friend down here on the front row. Here it is, okay? I am a NASCAR fan. Am I the only one? Closet NASCAR fans out there, okay. Some of you, some of you are like, yeah, I tune in to see the crashes. That's right. You're not a NASCAR fan, okay. If you don't endure all 1,000 turns to the left in the race, if you've never done that, you're not a NASCAR fan, okay. So let me tell you the secret to NASCAR. Now, there, there, there are two tracks that are unlike all the other tracks on the circuit. Daytona and Talladega. They're the biggest tracks. They're the fastest tracks, and the cars. Um, have to race in a particular way that's different than any other track, okay? It is, the only way you can win the race is if you understand the principle of drafting. Do you understand? You see, the way it works is the lead car cuts a hole in the wind and the cars behind him can draft if they get as close as they can to his back bumper and are content to wait patiently following until the strategic moment when the car in second place pulls out, slingshots past the leader, and wins the race. All right? Now, in theory, that works. The problem is most of these guys are not patient enough to follow. And so they start bumping the leader. And if you bump the leader in a bad moment, this is what can occur, okay? This is what most churches look like, okay? By God's grace, we are not going to be that church, okay? And if we are going to win, if we're all going to go onward together, then we need some good leaders and we need some great followers. And the, th the thing is, is, if you're a follower, understand this. The leaders get old and slow down. And that's your moment to take the leadership that's handed off to you because great leaders are always looking to multiply themselves in other great leaders. Be clear who you're following and what your role is and serve in that role. Secondly, great leaders are obedient. Not a politically correct word. But listen, it's not enough to affirm 
your boss. It's not enough just to compliment your boss. It's not enough just to talk great about your boss. If you're not doing what you're told to do, you're not a great follower. And nobody should be able to give orders who has not learned to follow orders. So be obedient. Do what you're told to do when you're told to do it with the right heart attitude and you'll be a great follower. Thirdly, great followers are servants. You know what servants do? They do the jobs that nobody else wants to do. Servants do the jobs that nobody else even sees need to be done. They do the jobs that won't get recognition or praise or gratefulness. They just do them because they are looking for a way to make the leader a success. They shine the light on others around them and above them because great leaders are humble. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself, he's always climbing the ladder, always wants the top box, he always wants the leadership position. Whoever exalts himself, Jesus said, that's the guy that will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself, Jesus said, that's the guy that gets exalted and elevated to the place of leadership. And finally, great leaders, great followers are loyal. They never speak negatively about their boss publicly. It doesn't mean they always agree. A great follower is a raving fan publicly and an honest critic privately because he understands I need to make my leader a success. If I am quiet right now, there's a huge hole right now that needs to be addressed. My leader doesn't see it. I'm going to come around and help him see things he can't see. That's what a loyal follower does. Now, I told you there's two challenges here. Here's the second challenge, especially in our church. And this is, quite honestly, this is our problem. If we have a problem, this is it. It's dealing with the one who's qualified, gifted, and equipped, but won't lead. There are so many qualified, awesome people here who should be in positions of leadership. But you won't lead. And the reason is probably because you're too busy leading trivial things. You don't have any time left over from your softball team, your canasta group. Your dog training, small group, I don't know. But do you understand that the church needs great leaders? And we can't be content to sit back and say, well, you know, I think we have like five pastors. Yeah, how many people do you have in church? Like 1,500? Yeah, they're going to do a great job leading those people. You know, but we have positions of leadership that are available. And some of you are waiting for something that's like the right fit or something. Listen, just step into a leadership role when you hear about it and lead. And God will put you in the right place. Here's the third thing. We're running out of time. We're going to take two quick snapshots of the backstory of Joshua and we'll be done. First of all, onward leaders find courage for the battle. Open your Bible to Exodus chapter 17. We are blazing through this story in about two seconds, okay? Pastorally speaking. Exodus 17, let me tell you what's happening. 
Moses is the leader, Joshua is his assistant, and the nation of Israel comes under attack from a foreign enemy. They're enemies of God's people, they're enemies of God, and in Exodus 17, beginning in verse 8, we find that Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rehadim. So Moses said to Joshua, love this, choose for us men. I, I know that's the way he said it. I just know. And I think he was looking for men with facial hair. I just do. All right? Not, not guys that, you know, hadn't, it hadn't quite grown in yet. But men. He didn't choose boys. He chose some men. Choose some men. Second assignment. Go out and fight with Amalek. Okay? All right. I'm, I'm ready to do that. Moses, I'm your assistant. I'm, I'm loyal. I'm faithful. What are you going to be doing? I'm going to stand on top of the hill way over there, and I'm going to be praying for you. Have you ever had somebody say that to you? You're going through a really spiritual battle, and it's like, man, I'm just getting crushed. I'm just getting, I'm just getting killed by the spiritual battle. It's like, I'll pray for you. Thanks. Can you imagine Joshua? Now, if I was Joshua, this is probably what I would have said in a very sarcastic tone. Hey, Moses, I've got a new battle plan. How about you go fight Amalek, and I'll go pray for you? But that's not what Joshua said. He was loyal and he was faithful. I want you to notice, first of all, Joshua did not go out looking for a fight. Christians don't go out looking for fights. If you are a Christian, do not be surprised when the fight comes looking for you. And God allows it. Because do you know what God does in the battle? He prepares the leader. There were three things that God was doing as Joshua went out to fight that battle against Amalek. He was testing his strength. He was forging his courage. And he was growing his confidence for future battles. We're, we're going to get into the book of Joshua. And do you know what the book of Joshua is all about? It is all about battle after battle after battle. This battle with Amalek was the first battle. And he needed the battle to prepare him for future battles. If you're in a battle right now, don't despise the battle. Understand God is preparing you for battles to come in the future. And you can rely upon God in the battle. Look at verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him. Obedience. He did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So we got a team. We got a leader, Moses, and we got three assistants. We got Joshua, who's in the battle, and you got Aaron and her who are standing next to Moses. Then look at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed, and whatever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. Can you imagine Joshua down there? I mean, at times he's winning the battle, and the other times he's getting crushed, and he looks up there like, Moses, get your hands up! I need a little help, Okay. And so he tries harder in verse 12. It says, Moses' hands grew weary because he was getting old. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and her held up his hands. That is a great description of great followers. They hold up the hands of weary leaders. And they get beside them and they get close enough to know, how can we lift up your hands? It says, one on one side, one on the other. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And verse 13, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. 
What do you think the message was to Joshua? Every time you're fighting and Moses' hands are down, you're losing. But when you're fighting and Moses' hands are up as he's praying and getting vertical, you win. What's the, what's the message? The battle belongs to the Lord. If you try to fight in your own strength, you're going to lose every time. Onward leaders find courage for the battle, and they understand that the battle is won vertically. Here's the last snapshot, and we'll be done. Get your Bible open to Exodus 33. As you're turning there, I will remind you, the very first sermon that was ever preached in this church on February the 8th, 2009, was preached from this text of Scripture, Exodus 33. The very first sermon that was ever preached in this room on February 12th, 2012, was preached from this text. This is an important text for Harvest Bible Chapel. I want you to see it. Here's the fourth point. Onward leaders will not go onward without the presence of God. They refuse to take a step where God is not going. Look at verse 1, Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. To the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will send an angel before you. How many of you would like an angel? He's like, sign me up for that program. I'll take two. Um, I am in a spiritual battle. I would like two angels to go with me. Be interested in that? Great. So that's a, that's a perk. He says, an a, I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites. How many of you would like God to start driving out some of your spiritual enemies? Like that program? Great, great. Verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. How many of you would like some Krispy Kreme donuts on the way? Okay. Like, man, this is awesome. There are perks to following God. But, verse 3, I will not go among you. Really, God? You're not going to come? Hmm. We can have your promise. We can have your protection. And we can have your provision. But you're not going to go? Hmm. Three out of four is not bad. We'd like to have you, but that's kind of an accessory. I guess we can make it with your provision, your protection, and your pr promise. Is that what Moses said? No. Moses said, stop. We are not going. Look at verse 15. Moses went into the tent to have a conversation with God, and he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. I'm not going onward without you. Verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. The glory of God was the manifest presence of God. It was the only way they could be assured of victory to know that it was not about some horizontal experience enjoying the amenities of the land flowing with milk and honey, but it was about being with God on the journey in the land with Him. And Moses said, Show me your glory. That's what I want. I'm not interested in a land that's not occupied by you. And finally, you say, what does this have to do with Joshua? Look back up at verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Do you see the intimate relationship that this great leader had with God? And then when Moses turned again, left the tent, went into the camp, 
Notice, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Joshua had the same appetite for the presence of God that Moses did. He had gotten so close to the leader that he had absorbed his values, his mission, his love, and his desperation for the presence of God. So Moses was in there probably praying the same prayer. Show me your glory. Moses saw it. I want to see it the way you see it. Show me your glory. Are you content to live without the presence of God? Enjoying his, presence, enjoying his promise and His provision and His protection. Don't be content to live without the glory. Would you bow your heads for a moment? I want to give you just a second just to ask the Lord to answer the same prayer that Moses prayed. Would you ask God to restore His presence, His glory, in your marriage, in your prayer life, whatever spiritual battle you're facing. Leadership is good, but leadership is not God. Jesus Christ perfectly embodied servanthood as a follower, obediently obeying, obediently following every command God gave. He's our model. But He's also the model of leadership. He is our ultimate leader. He is our Lord. Is He your Lord this morning? Have you made the choice who you're following? Is it clear? You're following Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, some of you need to have the same testimony that you've heard in these baptistry waters. Some of you at the end of the service need to come and say, you know what? For the first time in my life, I'm ready to make it public. I am ready to go on record. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. You'll never be the leader God wants you to be if you don't become the follower He wants you to be of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in our midst and even as we close the service today. God, hear the heart's cry of people that are in the midst of the battle. Remind them that you are building courage you're testing strength and you're preparing them for the battle to come God would you shake someone out of a following position into a leadership position that needs to be strong and courageous would you help us to value what it means to be a great follower show us your glory as you do we pray in Jesus name Amen let's stand and sing for a second